welcome to another episode of Science of the Southland presented by From the Rumble Seat. It is August 26th, and I am staff writer Akshay Ishwaran. Joining me elsewhere in Midtown Atlanta on the beautiful campus of the Georgia Institute of Technology is Cade Lawson. Hello. And other staff writer, Ethan Kreger. Hello. So we are finishing up our 2018 football preview today, talking about Tech's new defense under Nate Woody, and also very quickly going over Tech's first game versus Alcorn State next week. Toe meets leather next week, y'all. How exciting is that? That's super exciting. It kind of snuck up on me, actually. I kind of forgot it was so close by. Yep, September 1st. Be here before we know it. Six, only six more days. Athletics has gotten in the groove with all those photos from practice and also the photos of players in uniform with the different numbers. It's great. Everyone's, I, I feel like on campus, the buzz is that football season is coming, getting ready. I think there's a lot of, like, you can definitely feel like there's a lot of hype for football this year, despite, like, what happened last season. Yeah, I think so. a lot of people are excited about all the changes they've made from the new locker room to the new Adidas sponsorship. It's It'll be a little bit different this year. Yeah, definitely. But before we go on to talking about what's new with Texas defense as one of those changes, Jake is unfortunately out this week. Our intrepid non-rev writer decided to prioritize something else over recording this podcast. How dare he? Sad. Uh, so sad. So Ethan, what is going on in the wide world of non-rev sports? Yeah, so volleyball started off their season this weekend with two games on Friday and two games on Saturday and won all four of them. Beat Idaho State, Winthrop, Abilene Christian, and Georgetown only dropped one set in the four matches combined. I was able to get to three of them, all except the Idaho State match. I watched a little bit of that one on the live stream. And I can say that for a team starting four freshmen, it was awesome to see them go out there and dominate like that in the opening weekend. And there were some things that they did that should translate really well to the ACC season. They did a great job at the end of tight sets, getting the ball side out and getting it out to the outside hitters. Uh, Michaela Dowd and uh, Mariana Brambia. Brambia ended up the MVP of the tournament, and Dowd had a fabulous weekend as well. Both are freshmen, by the way, in case I didn't mention. <laughs> I think Jake mentioned Dowd last week as his player of the game in that exhibition game and also as his uh, token Chicago sports player at Georgia Tech. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's got to throw in something about the Chicago girl. But Dowd was fabulous. Brambia looked a lot better this weekend than she did against Auburn. Freshman setter Maddie McKissick and freshman libero Maddie Tippett were awesome as well. So, you know, hopefully they can go out there next weekend and win four more. Eight no start would be something to be real excited about, even if all eight were at home over teams that aren't power five. So we'll see what happens. Their next game is Thursday at noon against Alabama State, and they have three more after that. Yeah, so if you're in town, that's a, that's a nice lunch break right there. Come to O'Keefe, bring your lunch, or maybe buy some from the uh, concession stands, you know, quality permitting. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I recommend it. It's a great atmosphere down at O'Keefe on weekends when Tech Volleyball is playing. Yeah, and it was definitely electric this weekend. I was with you for a couple of those games, and you could really feel like people really happy to be back on campus, really happy to be back at O'Keefe and watching Georgia Tech Volleyball. And something that Jake touched on last week with that small gym feel, it's definitely showcased at O'Keefe. That place can get really loud even when it's not 
completely at capacity. And even and when it's at capacity, it is deafening. Yeah, I could not agree more. So I'm really excited to see what this team can do this year. They don't have any seniors in the rotation, so they should be even better next year. But, you know, who knows? Maybe they can do something this year. Yeah, hopefully. So let's move on to football then. But before we talk about Nate Woody's new look defense at Georgia Tech, let's review how the Yellow Jacket defense looked in 2017 under former defensive coordinator Ted Roof. So I think all three of us know Roof's defenses were known for this bend, 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 and then break mentality. I think that was best showcased or best or worst, depending on your you know, your persuasion. In the Miami, the Duke, and the UVA games last season, Ted Roof left for NC State after the season, but his defense at the end of the season had, you know, a kind of a mixed bag of rankings. A lot of these look good on the surface. You know, a lot of these are top 60-ish, top 50-ish. But, you know, if you look at them in context and you watch the tape, they're not, I don't know, they just don't seem that great. We're talking about opponents' points per game at a 26.5 opponent yards per game at 354.3. That one was 33rd in the nation. Opponent passing yards per game at 200.6, and that was 35 in the nation. Opponent rushing yards per game, uh, 153.6, and that was 49th in the nation. So, like I said, it's a mixed bag of defensive performance that if you look at it as a composite and you just look at the rankings, and if you're as an objective third party, you might say, hey, Tech put together, you know, like a an okay defense, like a pretty serviceable defense. But then, like I said, you take a look at the tape, and especially those three games I mentioned, Miami, Duke, and UVA, and you just kind of scratch your head and go, well, what, what happened? Yeah, you, you described it as a mixed bag. I would definitely agree with that for the most part, um, with, the, with the caveat that it's actually a trash bag and everything inside it is just trash. Because well, we like to be, you know, we like to be a little positive here at from the Rumble Seat. Uh, yeah, once in a we don't, but but we've got we've got something to be positive about now with Nate Woody, so we can be negative about about the, the past, past a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so my big thing about the stats that are traditionally available for measuring defensive and offensive performance, especially like total defense and offense, is that they're kind of non-representative of the opportunities that different teams have to really be successful. So when you're talking about something like total defense, which is basically, first of all, something Tech was, I think, top 40 in last year, it's just a measure of how many yards they gave up per game. And that really lacks the context of pretty much everything. So the main thing with our case being the type of offense we run, which means that there's going to be fewer possessions and fewer opportunities to give up yards. So it's really, so I would describe it as kind of like a linear statistic that doesn't really take into account anything relevant or contextual, which is kind of a problem when you're trying to think about how effective the defense really was. The way I would put it, and this is very articulate and well thought out, I'm sure, is that it's like if you had a hot dog eating contest and you said to, what's the guy's name, Joey Chestnut, you can only eat 20 hot dogs, but everyone else can eat as many as they want. He's obviously going to lose because someone will eat more than that just because there's unequal opportunity to be successful, or in this case, unequal opportunity for the defense to show how bad it really was just because there aren't enough possessions in a game. I don't want to get ahead of us, but we'll talk more about some different statistics later on that are a little bit more efficient and really more to proportions than just opportunities. 
Yeah, I could not agree more. I think all of these numbers, all the way from points per game to yards per game, are a direct result of the fact that the defense spent less than half of the game on the field in, I believe, all 11 games, just due to the fact that so many offenses in the ACC run plays so quickly, and even the teams we played in the non-conference, while we spend an average of, you know, 25 to 30 seconds in between snaps. So the fact that we gave up 26 and a half points per game, and that's not awful. I mean, 64th is right around average in FBS out of 128, 129 teams. It grossly misstates how bad the defense was last season. Yeah, for sure. Because you're talking about having, you know, I don't know how many exactly possessions fewer per game, like fewer opportunities to give up those yards and points, but a pretty significant amount. And the fact that you're still not looking super hot in the points per game category and things like that is not a good indicator. No, not at all. And I think you can look at the turnovers per game stat too. you know, 0.9 turnovers per game, 122nd in FBS. And you say that for an offense like ours, where you can move the ball so well on the ground to set it up with a long field every time out. It's just, you know, not optimal. If we could get a short field every now and then, it would have really helped our offense last year, I feel like. Yeah, that that turnover per game stat is really a good example of of exactly what we've been talking about because you're seeing fewer opportunities to create those turnovers, and so you're ranked dead last, not dead last, but I think fifth from the bottom maybe, versus having few opportunities to give up yards and all of a sudden you're way up to the top. So it just shows how unrepresentative these things are sometimes. Yep. Well, now we have Nate Woody. He was a player and then an assistant and then defensive coordinator at Wofford uh, and then a defensive coordinator at App State and then now defensive coordinator at Tech. He's bringing his 3-4 scheme is what I kind of thought of as this Pete Carroll style, very aggressive, very characteristic flying around the field type of defense. Lots of priority on aggressiveness, like we were talking about with that turnovers per game stat, which would be much improved. And we'll touch on that in a bit. Uh, A lot more habit creation, a lot more positional flexibility uh, as well. You're seeing a lot of guys in camp that are starting to change positions and cross train at different positions. It's a lot different from what people were saying last season where they, or I think it, Brent Mitchell touched on this during media days where there are a lot of mental responsibilities in 2017 and prior defenses, whereas now Nate Woody comes in and brings this more intuitive, aggressive, flexible mentality. And I think his results speak for themselves. If you look at defensive S&P Plus from Bill Connolly, App State in the last three seasons ranked 40th, 27th, and 24th. That is just so much better than what Tech did. I don't have Tech's numbers in front of me, but rest assured, they were probably not that great, right? Bill also notes, also reemphasizes the point that the biggest defense between Woody and Roof is their habit creation, their disruption. Like you were talking about with that turnovers per game stat that was 122nd in the nation last season under Roof, Let's take a look at what Woody did at App State. You know, Havoc rate ranking, App State was 15th, Tech was 109th. Adjusted sack rate ranking, App State was 41st, Georgia Tech was 116th. And there's huge differences in these rankings across the board between these two defenses. And that just goes to show you how important that disruption, that Havoc creation, 
is to a defense in the modern spread optiony era of college football. And in terms of what players have been talking about in camp, it's been very positive. They're really bought into the system. Uh, and like I said, there's a lot of positional movement and a lot of ba- positional battles, uh, especially with guys cross-trading at different positions, like safety and outside linebacker, where a lot of the responsibilities that might be uh, extremely separate in a 4-3 defense, in the 3-4, now things are a little bit more fluid and they meld together. And overall, what they've said is it allows them to play a lot more aggressive, a lot faster, and they're having, it looks like, a lot more fun. Yeah, I think you made a couple of really good points there. You brought in, um, you brought up Havoc Rate, which is the statistic I didn't want to jump to too fast earlier, um, which my very scientific definition of Havoc Rate would be the extent to which your defense isn't made up of 11 scarecrows. But more scientifically or more accurately, it's just the sum of all your tackles for losses, forced fumbles, and your passes defensed. Or I don't know. I don't know. I think the scarecrow one works better. Actually, I mean, yeah, honestly, that's what I would write down if you asked me about it. But it's just we'll talk, your, to, we'll talk to Bill. We'll get in his column. Talk to Bill. Yeah. There you go. The important part of that is it puts it in context better of what I was talking about earlier, which is the small sample size, or not small sample size, smaller opportunity because it divides those four things I mentioned earlier by uh, your total plays. So that finally accounts for the fact that Georgia Tech is in control of time of possession most games and has many fewer opportunities for the defense to actually be bad just because the offense spends so much more time on the field. Um, And when you normalize for that, you see that Georgia Tech's rankings tank across the board pretty much. And they also become a lot more representative because you can see that the defensive back havoc ranking, Georgia Tech was 77th in that, which reflects – uh, the fact that the secondary is probably the strength of the team last year versus linebacker and uh, uh, linebacker and overall havoc rankings, which were 120th and 109th, respectively. And then the other thing that you mentioned that I really, really think is important is you used the word intuitive when you were describing uh, Nate Woody's defense. People remember we had a 3-4 defense before with Al Groh, and his issue was that for he was every bit as smart as anybody else. He was a you know defensive mastermind, really knew everything about it, but he was completely unequipped to teach the defense. Guys didn't understand what they were doing, and that makes it impossible to translate. So when you take a system that's a little more complicated than like a traditional 4-3 that we had with Ted Roof, or I guess we were 4-2-5 most times, uh, and change it to something more complicated, you've got to have a guy who's a good teacher, which it seems that Nate Woody really is. Yeah, I could not agree more with everything Cade mentioned there. My biggest thing with, with Ted Roof's defense was the fact that the recruiting, that Ted Roof's recruiting during his time at Tech was not terrible. I don't have the rankings in front of me right now, but I can remember several defensive recruiting classes ranking in the top 30 in the nation, and the ones that weren't were close to it. But you look at the recruiting numbers versus the havoc rate and the scuff rate numbers, and you wondered, you know, just how how poor of a coach he really was and how he was not able to get the maximum, you know, effort and maximum ability out of his players he was able to recruit because when you look at you know adjusted sack rate and stuff rate which i love because the job of the defense is to make it hard on the offense at the core and if you're giving up you know four or five yards on first down giving up second and five second and six you're not going to be successful on defense and that's why tech's offense has been so good the last few years because they've been able to get yards on first down make it easier on themselves on second and third down 
and Ted, Ted Roof's defense was doing exactly that for the other team. And you look at App State's numbers the last few years, and you know they really reflect the fact that Nate Woody and his defense are able to make it a lot harder on opposing offenses. And you know the other argument you can make is that you know App State is playing against teams in the Sun Belt Conference and formerly in FCS, and Georgia Tech playing against ACC teams. But I would say to that, you know, App State is in the Sun Belt Conference, and so Nate Woody is you know, putting up these numbers with some belt level players versus Georgia Tech and Ted Roof putting up these numbers with ACC level players. So I think the numbers, you know, will translate at some point to some degree. Yep, for sure. And you said, you mentioned uh, his uptick in recruiting. And it, that was that was a really good point because the quality of players that he's been bringing in, at least from a recruiting, or had been bringing in Ted Roof from a recruiting perspective, as far as how they were ranked nationally is much higher than what we were getting on offense. Um, and what we kind of started to see was this kind of Miami during the Al Golden times dilemma where you just keep getting talent, but you have to say, at what point do we realize he can't do anything with it? And um, he was ready to move on after this season, after we saw that he couldn't do anything with it yet again. Yeah, he's moved on now. He's at NC State as their 10th assist. I'm not exactly sure what he's doing there, but I don't believe he has control over the defense. And for NC State's sake, that's probably a good thing considering what he did at Tech the last few years. I want to say he's in charge of their secondary. That's the last report I heard. Looking at numbers, he's a little more he's a little more qualified to lead a secondary than lead a linebacking core, a defensive line yep. at least. Yep, and that's exactly where the talent he was getting was for. It was all defensive back talent that he was bringing in, and I think part of his title at NC State now is associate head coach. So who knows what that means? If you're an NC State fan and you know what Ted Roof is doing, please message us. Yes, absolutely. and we do not have a clue. So let yeah, us know. Like, not sarcastic at all. We have no idea. Please actually do let us know. I'm kind of curious myself. All right. So, like we were talking about last week, you know, I'm not really a football tactics guy. I just really want to know what needs to change at each unit, at each level of the defense for 2018 to be successful. I know the easy answer to this is that everyone needs to be better, everything needs to change. But I feel like we could go unit by unit and find at least one thing that they can, one specific thing that they can improve on uh, and make twenty seven or twenty eighteen a success. So let's start up front with the defensive line. Uh, so with the defensive line, like we said, this is a three four defense. So you have three down linemen. You're right now. I think we're looking at Henri Saint Armour, uh, senior, and Desmond Branch, senior. Uh, both of them are, are defensive ends. And then at nose tackle, you have also senior Kyle Serge Henderson. So a defensive line, uh, what does Tech need to do for 2018 to be successful? Well, I think before we start with defensive line, let's just say that the responsibilities of this defense are going to be dramatically different under Woody. So there's going to be much different you know, things that each position group needs to focus on to be successful this year. But starting with the defensive line, I think that what's going to help these three guys is the fact that Woody's defense relies on one-gap defensive linemen as opposed to Ted Roof's two-gap defensive line. And what I mean by that is Ted Roof's defensive linemen were responsible for both sides of the offensive linemen in front of them, where let's say their run, their run play, Virginia Tech's running the ball between center and left guard and defensive tackle is supposed to be able to react to the play happening and jump in that gap between the center and the guard 
where he's also covering the gap between the guard and the tackle. And you look at this year with Nate Woody, that gap is going to be responsible for one man. One man is responsible for the gap, whether it's nose tackle Serge Henderson or one of the ends or one of the inside linebackers. So I think that'll make it a little bit easier on everyone. But specifically at the players, I think Saint Amor was a guy that I was hoping that Woody would bump out to outside linebacker. But he's in there at defensive end now, and so it'll be a Moore and Branch at the ends, and Glanton as the number one backup behind them, and Serge Henderson at nose tackle. That's a pretty experienced group you've got with three seniors starting and with the junior as the primary backup and a lot of game experience, unlike most of the rest of the defense. So I think that group's probably got to be a strength of the defense this year for Georgia Tech to be successful. Yep, and that reshuffling kind of of the positional responsibilities um, all along the defense, kind of with the exception of the secondary. Uh, what we saw was kind of random depth appear in places where it wasn't before, and also some depth disappear as those responsibilities changed. So as far as the defensive line is concerned, that nose tackle position is probably the most important on the entire uh, defense, just in terms of what they're expected to do, which is to really eat the run up and be a huge body in the middle. Um, if you don't have that, you can't really stop the run at all because there's so much expected of those linebackers behind him and of the defensive ends on either side that he's really got to hold that down himself. Like you mentioned, Ethan, Kyle Serge Henderson's mentioned at the at the top of the depth chart for them right now, which is, you know, I fully trust that he's probably performed as well as anyone or maybe better. But the fact that he's 30 pounds lighter and an inch shorter than Brandon Adams, the guy behind him, is kind of concerning because of the type of responsibility you want from that position. Because you really want, like I said earlier, more eating space and making tackles than necessarily quickness at that at that point, although quickness is a big asset anywhere. Um, and then at defensive end, like you mentioned, Henri Saint-Amour and Desmond Branch. I like Desmond Branch a lot as a player. I hope he's not too negatively impacted by um, changing from 4-3 to 3-4 since he was kind of hitting his stride last year a little bit. Uh, and then my dark horse is going to be Antoine Owens. He's currently second at the depth chart uh, behind Henri saint -Amour. And he's just a really talented, really explosive guy at defensive end who you think could really get around some, some um, offensive linemen. Yeah, I think you're on the right track with the nose tackle that we'd like a bigger guy, and we have one in Brandon Adams who should at least start next year. But even in 3-4 defenses, the most important thing for the nose tackle to do is create havoc in the backfield and eat up double-team blocks. So, you know, whether the guy's 330 pounds or 300 pounds, the primary thing he's got to do is, you know, take two offensive linemen away from everybody else in the defense. So if Serge Henderson is the best at that, then I don't think giving up 30 pounds is a huge issue. Yeah, that's true. Um... My big concern was just based on what we've seen from him in the past, if that's really his skill set, just because uh, Brandon Adams' strength, we've seen him play the majority of his playing time has come kind of on the uh, in goal line situations, which is where he's done that exact thing really well. Yeah. Um, and actually he's done yep. better than really well with eating double teams on, on um, defensive line or uh, red zone opportunities. But it could be anything from conditioning concerns to him just not performing. So if Kyle Serge Henderson's the guy, then that's, I mean, obviously the coaching staff knows way more about that than I do. Yeah. And I think another thing to remember here about the defense this year is that they're going to be rotating a lot of guys because the scheme is new and they want to see where guys fit. So there's, we're going to see a lot of Brandon Adams, whether he's the starter or the backup, especially in the first few games and same with the other guys who are backing up at every position on the defense, really. Yep, definitely. And they're left, uh, Serge Henderson and Adams at the last depth chart. I think they were listed as co-starters too. So we'll see a lot of both of them. 
Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I'm looking at my notes here, and I think we have three or four guys at a couple of these positions from when we wrote up our previews on some of these positions. And it, it's very clear that we're going to see, like you said, a lot of rotation, especially during the first couple of games where we have time to sort of tinker and find the most effective lineup. So I think that's something I'm looking forward to, making uh, like looking at these defensive adjustments during those first two games and find and Woody finding his finding his step and finding his preferred lineup uh, moving forward as we hit the stride of ACC play and rid the meat of that schedule. Yeah, but I think the switch to 3-4 will be both a blessing and a curse because we're going to have a few guys who are going to have to play out of position. Like Cade mentioned, Desmond Branch is a much more you know suited for the 4-3 defensive end position. Responsibilities are a little different there than they are in a 3-4 defensive end. But you know, I think guys will get used to it after a game or two and even with all these preseason practices. So hopefully it won't be a huge concern. Yeah, hopefully. Oh, I, I think everyone will adjust. Like you said, they'll get some of the preseason jitters out of the way. Like we were seeing in uh, last night's week zero games, a lot of teams have preseason jitters, especially I think it was the New Mexico State-Wyoming game where I don't think New Mexico State scored a point until the last minute of the game so yeah preseason jitters team will figure it out they'll get over it and i think by week two week three once we start hitting acc play we'll be uh we'll be as effective as possible yeah i believe new mexico state went two and ten last year so that might also be a function of them just not being very good at the the whole football thing they actually went to a bowl <laughs> last year oh they did okay i must be thinking of somebody else anyway Let's move on to the next level of the defense, linebackers. So in our preview, we mentioned that we have four guys that are going to probably rotate in at the inside linebacker position. Uh, You're looking at Brant Mitchell, a returning senior, Bruce Jordan Swilling, sophomore, Quez Jackson, uh, incoming freshman, and then Trey Jackson, who's a redshirt senior. Uh, And then an outside linebacker, there are two different responsibilities that I think, Ethan, you, you're going to touch on when we talk this through. At Jack linebacker, you have Victor Alexander, who's a senior, and then Jaquan Henderson, who's a sophomore. And then at Stinger, you have Jalen Johnson, who's a senior, and then Charlie Thomas, who's a freshman. So again, you're seeing a lot of depth created, a lot of rotation. And I think linebacker is one of those positions that is primed to have a very good year. But what needs to change from 2017 in order for it to be a good year? Yeah, so inside linebacker is is going to be a strength. I think it could probably be the strongest part of the entire defense. Uh, just because you have a longtime starter, this is going to be his fourth year, Brent Mitchell, an inside linebacker. He looked fantastic during the spring game. And then on the other side, you've got a two deep with David Curry and Bruce Jordan Swilling. So Bruce Jordan Swilling is the guy, you know, former four-star. You really thought he was going to be locking down that job at this point. But I think it speaks more to David Curry's performance in the spring than his lack of performance. So if David Curry's been as good as we can assume he's been based on the fact that he and Bruce Jordan Swilling were listed as uh, co-starters on the last uh, depth chart, you've got to be pretty excited about what that is. And then same with Jaquez Jackson, who's also on the 2D behind Brant Mitchell. He's a really talented guy. So you've got to feel really good about inside linebacker right now. Yeah, but could not agree more. I think inside linebacker will be a strength this year of the team and then we can go to outside linebacker and look at the jack position and the stinger position before i go into players and 
my opinions on the too deep at the moment at the positions. The Jack linebacker position is kind of a hybrid between a 3-4 defensive end, or between a 4-3 defensive end and a 4-3 outside linebacker. The Jack position is usually going to be your fourth pass rusher in a 3-4 defense after your three defensive linemen, and it's a guy who, you know, hopefully can take up two blocks, but also come off the edge and beat a guy one-on-one to get to the quarterback when he's asked to do so, and maybe play a little coverage, but his primary responsibility is going to be to rush the passer. And then you look at the Stinger linebacker position, which is much more of a hybrid between a 4-3 outside linebacker and a a 4-3 safety. So it's going to be more the guy who covers tight ends, covers slot receivers, covers running backs out of the backfield, and maybe a little bit more or a little bit less, you know, rushing the passer and doing other responsibilities that a linebacker normally does. You look at the Jack linebacker, the starter right now is Victor Alexander, who started at inside linebacker in the 4-2-5 last year. I think he's the perfect fit for the Jack linebacker position because he's a little bit bigger and he's shown the ability to rush the passer when given the chance. I like him at Jack this year and Jaquan Henderson right now is backing him up. I know there was talk of him moving out to Stinger this year under in the 3-4 defense, but I personally see him more as a Jack a guy who can get after the passer and create havoc in the backfield unless a guy who covers receivers on the outside. And you look at Stinger, with Jalen Johnson being backed up by Charlie Thomas. Jalen Johnson is the guy who was at safety under Ted Roof last year and played a little bit, saw a little bit of playing time, but wasn't a starter. And in the time he showed out on the field, he was adept at covering slot receivers and covering running backs. So I like him at Stinger, and I like Quan Henderson at Jack to back up Alexander even if other people have the opinion that Henderson should be starting at Stinger. So we'll see what happens this year. But I like to deep moment. I like where the guys are and which position they're occupying. Yeah, and in my opinion, this outside linebacker position is the one with the most question marks just because you really have to recruit specifically for this position because of its responsibilities, um, both with, in coverage and also trying to provide the primary pass rush for the team. And that's really the main spot that wasn't filled by anybody on the roster and kind of the hardest to make a transition to for anybody, which is why you've seen, especially in the spring game throughout the spring and probably into the season, so many of those talented backfield defensive backs that we talked about, Ted Root bringing in, rotating in and out of that linebacker spot, even though they weren't necessarily brought on for that. So I think that it's probably going to be the biggest boomer bust position on the entire defense this year. Either these guys who are complete question marks are going to really, really take to it or really, really struggle especially early on in the season. But you've got to be happy with probably the the fact that you at least have some experience in Jalen Johnson at Stinger, even though I'm not entirely sure why they are more confident in him there than at safety where he's been for his entire career so far. And then Victor Alexander, he's another veteran, but you really want to limit the amount of time he's in coverage, which you can kind of do to an extent. But if somebody else could step up at his position, I think that would just be for everyone's benefit, even though he is a very talented player in his own right. I agree. I think that, you know, the thing with Jalen Johnson is that he's a little bit bigger than the guys that Ted Roof or, excuse me, Nate Woody are looking at at safety at coming in around 240 pounds. And a, a common theme you're going to see throughout Nate Woody's defense is that he prioritizes speed over size. And so when he's looking for safeties, he's looking for quicker guys who are able to cover space in the defensive backfield much quicker. And for that reason, I think they, they moved Johnson down to Stinger where he has less coverage responsibility, even if it's, you know, occasional or normally coverage. But underneath, he's a little bit better at covering guys than in the in, 
excuse me, than deep in a, the defensive backfield. Yep, for sure. That being said, talking about the defensive backfield, let's move on to the secondary. So I think this position is where Tech lost a lot of experience. I think all four starters last season were seniors, and all of them went UDFA after the NFL draft, I want to say. I mean, this was, like we said, this was Ted Roof's specialty coaching position. And this is typically where we had the most talent and the most ability. So right now on the depth chart, we're looking at, uh, at cornerback, we're looking at Ajani Kerr and Lamont Simmons. Uh, and then at safety, we're looking at Christian Campbell at free safety and Tariq Carpenter at strong safety. Ethan, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the boundary and field positions? I have some notes here, but I think you'll be able to shed better light on it than I can. Yeah, so briefly, you know, Johnny Kerr's at boundary and Lamont Simmons is at field to start the fall. I was a little surprised to see Kerr in the boundary and Simmons in the field. But when I thought about, you know, what Nate Woody's looking for, it makes a little more sense because briefly in the boundary corner position, you're much more technically sound as a corner. You've got less space to defend, so you don't have to be nearly as quick as the field corner. But you've got to defend normally the top receiver on the other team. They want to operate over there when there's a little bit less space. Kerr is the right fit over there for that position. Then you look at Lamont Simmons, who's much bigger than Kerr over in the field position and much better at covering space quickly, as we saw with his remarkable touchdown against Miami last year on uh, Mark Rick's onside kick decision. But anyway, I think Simmons is the right fit as an experienced senior in field corner where he can cover space quickly because he's shown, or at least last year under uh, under roof, he looked a little bit less technically sound than Kerr at corner. Obviously, an offseason can change that. But putting him over where he doesn't need to be nearly as technically sound as Kerr is probably a good move this fall. Yeah, and that the secondary, like you mentioned, Akshay, is where all the talent disappeared from. Uh, you lost... Step Durham, the Austin Twins, and then unfortunately you also lost your your best safety in AJ Gray to his his medical condition. But there's some really really interesting players that are here, still ready to play and contribute. Um, a lot of them that are on the two deep at secondary positions got some playing time in the spring game at that outside linebacker position. But I'm guessing they've probably settled in more to that uh, secondary position. They were more recruited to play. So. We're talking about guys at free safety like Christian Campbell, who's got a little bit more experience now, even though you were expecting him to be a very strong backup to an even stronger A.J. Gray at that position. You know, he was the one-time quarterback of the future here. Hey, he was listed as a quarterback in NCAA 14. I remember that. He'd always come in garbage time when I played career mode and was racking up huge wins. Yeah, well, he was. we thought he was going to be the heir to Justin Thomas at one point until he moved to safety and never came back. But um, Womp no, but still, he's he's a very, very talented player still. He can make some really good plays at free safety this year. Uh, and then I actually like our two cornerbacks a lot, and Lamont Simmons and Johnny Kerr. Uh, Simmons in particular, transfer from USC. He's a senior now, so he's played quite a bit. He was uh, pretty instrumental last year, although he made some had some missteps along the way. But he really gives a size that we've been missing at the outside or at cornerback for a while now with the Austins and Steph Durham both coming in at, I think, 5'11"-ish. Lamont Simmons is 6'2", and a little bigger, which will help out a little bit. But he still doesn't give much explosiveness away. And then Yanni Kerr, we saw him make some really good plays last year. I think he had the deflection, game-ending deflection, and maybe the Virginia Tech game. He did. That was the one notable play I remember from yeah. last year for him. Yep, absolutely. 
And then really talented guys backing them up and people like Jalen Askew and Trace Willing, plus other four stars on the two deep at strong safety, guys like Caleb Oliver and Tariq Carpenter. So I think there's the pure talent there, but none of it has really been proven yet. So whether or not they really are able to step up in their first year is going to be really telling us the type of unit they're going to be for the next few years here. Yeah, I completely agree. We've got a lot of young talent in the secondary because of the recruiting that Ted Roof was able to do there, as we touched on earlier. And even now with Nate Woody, it's continuing. They've uh, signed several high three stars come in next fall. Yep. So corner, corner should be a position that we are strong at for years to come. But in the present, can uh, Johnny Kerr and Lamont Simmons hold up their end this year and the guys behind them come in at nickel? Like Jalen Askew is probably going to be the nickel corner this year. And he come in and cover guys right away with, you know, limited playing time the last couple of years will be seen. And I think you'll get to see the secondary and what it can do a lot versus USF. I know that I think it's Blake Barnett that was just named the USF starting quarterback. He's been all around the country. I think at one point he was at Bama and then at another point, Arizona, Arizona State. State. Yeah, so, and from what I remember watching and reading about him at Bama, he's compared to Quentin Flowers, who was uh, USF's previous quarterback, he's a little bit more of a pocket passer, I think. So you're going to see a lot more, a lot less mobility from USF this season, a lot more stereotypical pro-style, chicks dig the long ball kind of plays. And that, I think, is where you're going to see the effectiveness of the Georgia Tech secondary, what can they yeah. do against a Bama caliber, obviously transferred, but he's a Bama caliber quarterback, a five-star caliber quarterback in an opposing stadium and on, you know, not as much experience as maybe as last year's secondary. Where is, what's the true talent level of this unit is really going to be revealed in that game. And I think another thing about that USF game is going to be, the different kinds of weapons they have who can catch passes. I wrote the preview for USF, and I've studied them quite a bit. So I can say that they've got a guy coming back in Tyree McCants who plays wide receiver, weighs about 240 pounds, uh, coming in at about 6'2". So you think he's going to be the kind of guy who you know, plays like a tight end or an inside slot receiver where you get out there on the field and he's actually quite fast. He is a burner down the sideline. He's going to be a handful for whoever has to guard him. Yeah, I, I'm just very, I, I'm sort of concerned when you're posing a inexperienced unit versus a guy like McCants, like you're describing. It's just going to be an interesting battle. But that, you know, talking about the USF game now before we even played Alcorn State, that might be putting the cart before the horse a little bit. Yep, completely true. Hey, I was told, so I was told that, on Twitter the other day, the most important game is the next one, so... Don't forget that very important <laughs> distinction to be made there, guys. Yeah, well, you know, the, certainly don't want to lose this weekend. Say, oh no, not at all. <laughs> Please don't. Going off of that, you know, some people say the most important phase of uh, playing a football game is special teams, and that's where we're headed next. Oh boy, hey, that's a third special of the game. Teams. That's a third of the third of the game right there. Mm. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, not for us last season. Special teams in. 2017, uh, I, I can't put it much nicer than it, it stunk. It was Yeah, you can put it, it in Spanish. Fue un desastre. <laughs> they were awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's just well, – I'm going to pull a little bit from Bill Connolly's 
a preview of Tech. According to Special Teams S&P Plus, the Jackets lost about 1.5 points per game and falling from 22nd to 103rd. That's what happens when you turn your entire unit over to freshmen and sophomores, I guess. This unit fell 80 spots in special teams efficiency. That is massive. They ranked 125th in kickoff efficiency, which I think is based on touchbacks uh, and return yards. Starting position. Starting field position is key in that. Yeah. And that, and, you know, we'll touch on Presley Harvin in a minute. And, you know, he had a really good season. I want to say he was named uh, second team ACC All American or something along those lines. But the real struggles were at kicker. You know, the last couple of years we had Harrison Butker. He was really solid. You know, his first couple of years he was a little shaky, but after 2014, he really he was really solid for us. He became Tech's uh, highest scoring player, I believe, in uh, 2016. So you're basically replacing a generational talent at kicker. Uh, in 2017, with Brenton King and Sean Davis. And I think one of them got injured halfway through the 2017 season, and it was just a mess. The The kicking position in 2017 was a mess. Oh, it was awful. I don't want to relive it. I mean, we're just going to see, I hope, a lot of improvement from both of those guys. There were injury concerns for both of them. I think Sean Davis actually tore his ACL. Um, yep. Yeah, he did. So at least the point afters were pretty good. They each only missed one, so that's good. Um, Brenton King is the one that you think sh- is hopefully going to show the most improvement this season just because he's the the uh, scholarship guy, I believe. And outside of that, you just have to really, really hope that something has changed for for either one of them or both of them. Because without the ability to kick field goals, even from short distances with confidence, you're going to see Paul Johnson going for it in a lot more situations where you'd rather him not, even though there probably is a case to, for football in general for guys to go for it on fourth down more. And you and saw that at, at Tennessee. You saw that in the first Tennessee game where one of these guys missed a chip shot from about 30 yards out. I want to say it was sometime in the end of the first half. It was and then, missed, and then he missed a PAT in the second half. And Paul didn't want to. Paul wanted to go for it. He did when he was close enough. He just yeah. really didn't want to put what ended up being a very competitive and very big game on the hands of a very inexperienced kicker. And you know, I'm sure these guys are great, but I, I in that situation and in a lot of situations during the season, I, I can't really blame Paul for not wanting to. Yep, absolutely. And then they also in that same game missed the end of the game kick as time expired that would have won the game so that's not a great not a great <laughs> not a great uh however many 60 minutes for those guys that day yeah and look, even though that kick at the end of the game got blocked when you go back and look at the replay you can tell it wasn't the offensive line who got who had that kick blocked it was the kicker i think it was davis who attempted that one too the kick was low and it really had no chance of clearing the defensive line right from the moment he kicked it oh yeah but also, I'd like to go back to Connolly's comments about the Jackets losing approximately a point and a half per game and falling from 22nd to 103rd. Well, that point and a half per game would have made us from a 5-6 and six team into a 7-4 and four team with wins over Tennessee and Miami. So right there, you can tell 
important special teams can be if you're not very good at them. And we were not. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I. This is the one unit. Special teams as a whole really is just a huge question mark for me. Like you said, 1.5 points per game, that is such a it, – it's a seemingly small margin. But when you have – when you play every game close like Tech has done the last couple of years, that ends up being super huge. And if, if that's coming down to a couple missed kicks or a couple missed extra points, where, you know, you're – like a lot of these are chip shots – Tech is always going to get into the red zone. Tech is going to fight for every yard. And if if the offense is putting the kicker in a good position, like less than 40 yards, less than 30 yards to kick a field goal, you have to really hope that he nails it every time. And that just was not happening at all last season. Yeah, but a couple other things to think about with special teams. One is that there's several teams that we play every year who are notoriously excellent at special teams, Virginia Tech comes to mind as being a team that is top 10 every year in special teams efficiency. But you look at Duke with David Cutcliffe and Clemson, too. All are spectacular most every year on special teams. And those are the kinds of teams that we have to deal with on a yearly basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we talked a little bit about this earlier, but it even goes way deeper than just kicking. I mean, the kick returning, the field position we got from those guys was really, really, really bad. All season long, you could tell that Paul Johnson didn't really have a whole lot of confidence in anybody in particular to return anything. He just put the guy he thought would catch the best out there, which was Brad Stewart. Um, and we saw him fair catch most everything. Yep. And that's just – I haven't looked closely enough to know if that was a confidence in him issue or a confidence in the blocking issue, but or probably both, honestly, just based on how bad it was. You look at kick returner and – it, it was just like we were consistently either starting at, within our own 20 or it, it was a touchback, right? And even on one occasion to start off the Georgia game, we almost took a safety. We started on our own one, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that was Jerry Howard back there too for the first time or one of the first just times. A, it was a mix. Yeah. A rotating – I don't know. I'm basically saying it was a Rolodex of players playing at kick returner and punt returner. And I don't know. I think seeing some consistency and seeing some quality at those positions would really, really help us out. Yeah. And the biggest thing for those two guys, Stewart and Cottrell, too, is that they didn't even take care of the ball very well last year. If I remember correctly, they fumbled a combined six times, three each. So if they're the starters again this year, they've got to be better and just holding on to the ball, which was seemingly the reason that Paul was putting him out there because he couldn't have done anything else. But then you look at the number 103rd in special teams, S&P Plus. I will eat crow if that number does not go up this year. Paul has talked all offseason about how bad the special teams were and about how much better they need to get. And he's talked, he's walked the walk too. He's assigned one different assistant coach to each special teams group to figure out what went wrong last year and how it's going to be better this year, which players they need to put out there on the field to improve performance. So I think we're going to see that unit, or we're going to see every unit be much better this year. Paul's really optimizing that uh, special teams unit like an industrial engineer there. Absolutely. Let me take a page <laughs> of the old Stewart School of Industrial Engineering. But on to the good news on the special teams unit, Presley Harvin III is... <laughs> He's a really, really good punter. 
Uh, yeah. The stat that I have here is he was 30th, 30th in yards per punt at 41 or 44.1 yards per punt. He was also, I think, 18th in efficiency amongst qualifying punters. Dude is good. Dude is really good. Like on a on a special teams unit that sucked, he was the lone bright spot. And I I look forward to seeing him get even better. There was a punter at Bama, I think it was J.K. Scott, a couple years ago. Yeah, that you could expect to flip the field every time he came on it. I mean, Bama didn't punt that often, but whenever Bama punted, you knew that he was giving the Bama defense an advantage of where he was placing the other team. And I really think that Presley Harvin has the ability to be the J.K. Scott for Georgia Tech moving forward. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm just waiting for the day when they let him run a fake punt. Oh, my God. Somebody. He, he could absolutely deck somebody on a fake punt. We got to do it against Miami ever since a few years ago when um, I forget which punter it was, tried to run a fake punt, got the first down, but got destroyed. We got to get some revenge for that with, by getting Presley <laughs> to truck somebody. We'll send Paul a letter. Tell him to send Presley in to run a fake punt. I mean, I'm sure he's listening. You know, he listens. He gets some gets some pro tips from us every week. So, you know, Hopefully. Paul's out there somewhere. Hopefully, Paul listens to us. You know, that would be, that'd be great. <laughs> oh, Paul, yeah. if you're out there, if you're out there, call more fourth down uh, risky plays. I like those. Those are easy to chant from from the stands or cheer yes. for from the stands. I agree. Well, I'm, I don't know if we want more of those this year because that would mean the kicking situation is still a disaster. Okay. I think we want fewer fourth down attempts this year. <laughs> okay, also fair. Also fair. I read a really cool article the other day. I forgot where it was from, but it was it, and it was actually geared toward the NFL, but about how statistically it would make more sense or probably be more rewarding to go for it more on fourth down. Not that I think we should do it more this year, but just just some food for thought about Paul Johnson and the way he goes for it some more. There was actually an interview with a guy, a high school football coach in Arkansas who never punts. I think he, it is a 10-year career at the high school that he's been coaching at. He's punted maybe six times. Uh, and they, they're at the point where they just don't teach the formation. Like, they, whenever they, they call a punt formation, they have to call an extra timeout to make sure all the players are in, are in the right positions. And I think that's, that's a super interesting take of going for it on fourth down and making sure – and even if you don't get that many yards, like making sure that you, you show to the defense that you are a threat and that you, you have the ability to get those yards more often than not. Yeah, maybe we were taking some notes on that last year because I don't think we really talked the formations either a lot of the time. <laughs> oh, boy. Too true, too true. All right, well, that about wraps it up for uh, defense and special teams. Y'all have any final parting words on that? Um, I'm excited to see exactly what Nate Woody can bring to the table for these guys. It won't be his traditional 3-4 defense yet because it's Ted Roof's personnel left over from the 4-3, but I'm still excited to see him out on the field in action. Yep, and I forgot to mention earlier, uh, Brentavius Glanton. forgot to mention him, but shout out Brentavius Glanton. I think he's going to have a great year too. Okay. Cool. So very quickly, let's talk about this week's opponent, Alcorn State. You have a noon 30 kick, as is Georgia Tech tradition, on September 1st. You can watch it on TV on your local sports network. I think in Atlanta, it's on Fox Sports South, I believe. Branded as Raycom because that's how the ACC makes sense of TV. 
Alcorn State, if you remember from 2015, is an FCS HBCU. It's the alma mater of former Tennessee Titans quarterback Steve McNair. Uh, and in 2015, Tech absolutely smoked Alcorn State 69-6. to A very nice game that was in no way indicative of the rest of the season at all. So very quickly, let's go around the horn. Give me your prediction for this game. Uh, let's start with Ethan. Let's just say I sure hope we don't lose because starting 0-1 would be a death toll for the rest of the season. But with that said, I'll take us getting up 35 nothing in the first half and the offense going or the starters leaving the game and then a final of, eh, we'll give it 49-10. to 49-10. All right, Cade? Yeah, it's also very notably the, the alma mater of my elective psychology teacher in high school. And so if they're as good a football team as he was a teacher, uh, we're going to blow him out. Like, <laughs> massively, massively blow him out. So I think I'm going to go with 56-13 maybe. I think we'll see some defensive growing pains, which is where that 13 points comes from, especially as guys figure out early on, uh, or as Nate Woody figures out early on, who's best for what position and all. So easy win, definitely. If it's not, you're in a lot of trouble for the rest of the season. Yep. But yeah, I think 56-13 is probably what I would go. Yeah, uh, I re- 2015 was my first year here, so I remember that first game very acutely, and I also remember putting up 34 points in the first quarter. I look for Tech to do that exact same thing again, albeit with basically an entirely healthy offense instead of the uh, patchwork quilt of offensive linemen and position players that we had in 2015. So I'm looking for Tech by at least four scores, if not six. Actually, yep. six is 42 points. Yeah, no, that sounds yeah, about right. Yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but it should not be close remotely by halftime. Yeah, I'm. Hey, the halftime show. I heard Alcorn State is a really good band, and I remember their performance from 2015 being pretty solid. So I'm kind of excited for that. Not gonna lie. <laughs> I could get into that. Does anyone have an update on what our band is going to be doing this year? I remember it was tribute to math a few years ago, which was did not strike much fear. It was part of our band. themed last year, right? What? So I have no. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess uh, if you're on GT Band, drop us an email. Let us know what you're. Uh, let's know what we'll be hearing this season. Halftime is definitely one of my uh, favorite traditions in college football. It's definitely something that's real, super different and not corporate e at all. Unlike how a lot of other things in college football have become. So yeah, definitely looking forward to halftime shows and watching bands and you know just getting back to watching football again. Yep, absolutely. Yep. All right, so that about does it for us. Cade, where can they find you online? Uh, FTRS Cade on Twitter, where you'll see me uh, fighting about baseball and other things, or also Facebook, I guess. I always say that, and no one's added me yet, so. He's disappointed. People add him on Facebook. Yeah, I want some friends. Oof. All right, Ethan, where can they find you online? They can find me online at Ethan underscore Kreger on Twitter and on Facebook at Ethan Kreger. And just like Cade, I haven't seen anybody add me from this podcast yet either. I'd be real excited to interact with some viewers. Jesus, y'all, y'all viewers and listeners, get on this. Come on. Yeah, open it up on Facebook for you. Show me you're a real person. <laughs> not just a bot that we think <laughs> listens to our bot. podcast online. If yeah. they even listen. Well, I mean, I would like to think that people listen. Anyway, 
I don't do the Twitters as per usual, but I am on Facebook and all my articles get posted on from the Rumble seat and through at FTRS blog on Twitter. So you can find me there. You can yell at me about my hot takes, like about the uh, Bowling Green game being the most important game of the season. That was a fun one. It was a very fun comment section. Again, it's always the next one. Don't forget uh, it. Always the next always one. Always the next one. Even when there's not a next one, it's always the next one. <laughs> All right. Well, since we finally have a next one now, uh, I'm Akshay. Over there is Cade and Ethan, and we will see you next time on The Flats. Peace out.